Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Great Deconstruction Podcast. Today, it is my honor to be joined by Dr. Miguel De La Torre. Uh, did I say that right? De La Torre? Or De La Torre, Torre, yes. Okay. He is a professor, author, and scholar activist, as well as the 2020 American Academy of Religion Excellence in Teaching Award recipient, 2021 AAR Martin E. Marty Public Understanding of Religion Award recipient, um, and he is a professor of, professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Ilif School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. And he served as the elected 2012 president of the Society of Christian Ethics and as an executive officer for the Society of Race, Ethnicity, and Religion, uh, and is recognized as an international Fulbright scholar. Today, uh, we're talking about his newest book. And I, did I count right? You have some 40 books that you've written? About 44 at last count. Incredible. Uh, so I saw that and I was like, geez, uh, what what do you do on your off time? Uh, the book, the most recent book that is released is called Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. And that's a that will that's a lot. That's a that's a big title. Uh in which Mr. De La, uh, Dr. De La Torre foresees a future America dominated by white nationalists and equips us with the tools to resist it. Welcome to the show, Dr. De La Torre. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am so glad to have you here. Uh, generally, this show is about people's stories uh, going into deconstruction, uh, religious deconstruction in that sense. Uh, so I oftentimes ask people to tell me a little bit about growing up their religious beliefs and how that formed them and how how you go from a, a kid with beliefs to an adult and a scholar with uh beliefs and uh, also a mission to do something about those beliefs so i'll let you let you take it from there well uh basically i'm a refugee i came to this country as an infant and i grew up basically uh going to a catholic school and attending catholic mass but my parents were Santeros, so in the evenings we practiced the religion of Santeria. Okay. So I grew up with these two religious traditions at the same time. Um, when I became a young adult um, in my 20s, um, I walked down the aisle at a Baptist church and gave my life to Jesus and became a conservative evangelical. Okay. Uh, the reason I became a Southern Baptist was for deep theological reason. Uh, the girl I wanted to go out with would only go out with me if I went to church before on Sundays, and right. I ended up, she happened to be a Southern Baptist, so that's how that worked out. Uh, <laughs> but um, I remained a Southern Baptist, and, and, and so much so that I decided to get a theological education and become a minister. Um, I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary during the fundamentalist takeover. I was there. Wow. And as these denomination and the school became more conservative and fundamentalist, I began reading books in the library on liberation theology, and that radically changed my perspective, um, realizing that I will never find a church that would hire me as a pastor. I did what every unemployed uh, graduate student does, and I got my PhD, and hence that's it, my entry into the academy. Interesting. Uh, so I, I didn't know about your Southern Baptist, uh, not roots necessarily, but your the trunk being Southern Baptist. Uh, I, I also grew up Southern Baptist and mixed with Pentecostalism. So um, 
I, I've always called it Baptocostal in its mm-hmm. own uh, crazy way. I, I kind of grew up with some out there beliefs and was hardcore evangelical for a very long time. Then in my early 20s, I had a, a massive uh, deconstruction and dark nine of the soul or whatever term you use and uh, just flipped my perspective entirely. But though I became an atheist in that process, I still find so much about what Jesus does and says to be worthy of following. So I sometimes call myself a Christian atheist, uh, but it, the term Christian now has, has such a, a dirty connotation. It's really hard to be one to call that. And among Christians, they surely don't want to hear about Christian atheism. That's uh not a not a concept that many will take uh, without some umbrage. Your your book, the Resisting Apartheid America, is uh, the third in a series, correct? It is the third in a in a trilogy. Yes. Okay. And now, so to be fair to me, I am not familiar with your work prior to this, uh, but I have fallen in love. Um, it took me about two seconds when I opened up the page. I saw your dedication <laughs> and, and it, it made me laugh so hard. Uh, but this book is de- dedicated to the senators, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. And uh, I knew that I was going to like it as soon as I saw that dedication, that you were cheeky and uh, a smart ass and all the best ways. So tell me about apartheid America. How do we resist it? And uh, we'll just start there and we'll get sure. to more questions. Well, this is a buildup of the first two books. Uh, the first book, um, Burying White Privilege, was a examination of this thing we call Christianity, uh, which is really a form of white supremacy, a Euro-Christian nationalism. Yeah. And it was an attempt to understand why it is so dangerous to communities of color and for communities of color to practice this white nationalist Christianity Um, They're doing damage to themselves and to their community. The second book, Decolonizing Christianity, was written just for communities of color. And the idea was to help those of us within our own communities whose minds have been colonized by this white nationalist Christianity to begin to um, decolonize those minds. Now, this third book is a continuation of that conversation. And this one Um, What I try to do is looking at what's going on in the now, and if nothing changes, what will most likely be the sociopolitical atmosphere 5, 10, 15 years from now? And, And unfortunately, what we are seeing is a reconstruction of an apartheid system in where communities of color basically are marginalized, while white supremacy becomes the norm of the land. Now, it's always been the norm of the land. This is not something new. But now it's, it, it has a new spirit and a new vigor to it that seemed to have been dying off during the start of the new millennium. What, what, do, you, what do you think the reason behind the that new spirit, um, that kind of renewed sense or dedication to it. Because I, I was just thinking today, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Daily Wire and uh, the 
Ben Shapiro, the, you know, I, I don't know if that can be white supremacy because he's a Jewish guy, but it's still this, it's just in different clothing, but it's the same doctrine, the same stuff is being pushed. Um, these white supremacists are now multicultural. They'll mm-hmm. have uh, Jewish people, white people, black people, all pushing the same narrative, which m- intends to erase a part of that, of those contributors. Like, like a, what do you attribute this rise to? Mm-hmm. Well, before I answer the question, what do I attribute the rise to? Let's go back to what you said about um, Chappelle for a moment. In the book, what I argue is that when we talk about white, we're not talking about skin pigmentation. Uh, we're talking about an ideology of white supremacy. Yeah. And there are black bodies and brown bodies and Asian bodies and, and indigenous bodies who can be ontologically white. That is, while occupying a body of color, they embrace the white supremacy of the dominant culture. And that's what I mean by having their minds colonized. In the same way, Christianity, white Christian nationalism, Christian, has nothing to do with faith or tradition or doctrines. So you have Jewish Christians, Muslim Christians, atheist Christians, humanist Christians, all who also support this white supremacy, this ideology of white supremacy. So the fact that a Jewish person or a Muslim or an atheist embraces this white supremacist ideology, they may be Jewish, but they're a Jewish Christian nationalist because ontologically they have bought into this ideology of, 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 of apartheid. Now, to go to your question as to what do I see has invigorated this new movement, um, since the civil rights, the country has been struggling to move beyond this legacy since the foundation of this nation in where only white people had agency in politics and in society. And we began to see the dismantling of um, Jim and Jane Crow, the dismantling of, of laws that prohibited people of color, uh, women, uh, the queer community from having equal civil rights. Um, During the 2008 presidential election, um, these communities of colors really banded together and did the unbelievable. They literally um, elected a black man to occupy the White House. And it was this White House was supposed to stay white. And instead, you had a fairly moderate liberal. I mean, we're not talking about political liberalism and, and, and who downplayed uh, issues of race and got elected, but that was too much. That was the line that was crossed that could not be crossed. Not only did people of color begin to have more civil rights, not only did they begin to have more voice, but also the queer community began to have more rights and more civil rights, you know, starting with the dismantling of the prohibitions of who can marry who um, in about 2005. So by the time the Obama administration ends, Make America Great Again 
becomes that rally cry to return to a simpler age when people of color knew their place and queer folks just stayed in the closet. So what we see with the rise of the Tea Party and and, and then the rise of of, of the MAGA Party is this this attempt to, to reinstitute an apartheid political and social system that we're seeing now with everything of what you can read with the banning of books to what you can learn in the classroom by preventing the histories of people of color to be part of the curriculum as to who you can love and and what women can do with their bodies. So I see what's going on now. If this continues and is successful to a point where people like myself um, will definitely become uh, more endangered as far as being able to teach and or be able to even have a job. That's 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 interesting. What what do you think the end goal? Do they do the people that are making this happen? I, the leaders of Westernism or the leaders of this apartheid attempt or or effort, do they know that this is their end goal? Are they aware that that's what they're trying to do? Or are they, I guess, putting lipstick on a pig and and calling it something else? Yeah. Somewhere in, in one of these three books that I wrote, I say that I am no longer interested in talking truth to power because power already knows the truth. These individuals know that in a more equal and just society, they could no longer have the unlimited and unearned power, privilege, and profits that they have been accustomed to and for which society has been designed to benefit them with. So they know that if we continue towards a more just society, they will, I don't want to say lose power, but they will not have the unlimited power that they once had. So this becomes, in their minds, a fight for survival. When in reality, if we create a more just society, everyone, including them, will benefit because we have more creativity, we have more profit-making along different avenues that were, you know, that, that before did not exist. I mean, we, I, I, one of the studies in the book that I, that I point out to is that if we would have had, um, you know, equal job opportunities from the year 2000 forward, we wouldn't have a deficit right now because of the income generated by communities that have been um, prevented through obstacles and through racism and ethnic discrimination from developing their abilities and making capital. So we are all suffering because of this, not just communities of color. Are we suffering? I, I agree with everything you say there. Um, is there a, is there an answer within capitalism or does it, is it just a, I, I would say that capitalism is the way by which this white supremacy is enforced upon people most. That's kind of my blanket definition of what capitalism does. It's greed condensed, more or less. Is there a way to fix the problem, to revolutionize or, or fight against the problem within that system, or must it be abandoned? What 
what are our answers here? Well, first of all, when we say capitalism, let's make sure we understand that we're talking about the same thing. Capitalism does not exist in the United States. You know, um, Adam Smith's idea of capitalism, where you have everybody basically um, looking out for the self-interest and producing products for the for, for consumers to choose among which is the best uh, built mousetrap, that doesn't exist. We have corporations that control the vast majority of the resources and dictate what price is going so to oligarchy. be. Oligarchy. So, oh, yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, we don't have the you know the, the the type of capitalism that most Americans think we have, and therefore defend. So instead, what we have is a system in where the vast majority of the resources that are being produced go to a very small percentile. You know, we call it a one percent, but in reality, it's the one percent of the one percent. Right. While the vast majority of us um, barely are able to put food on the table. So what this system then does is that it tells most of the MAGA folks that you know the problem is not these um, ultra the, the, this one percent ultra rich um, capitalists who are exploiting your labor. The problem is all those affirmative action lazy people. Um, who are taking away your jobs and uh, you have to pay a lot of taxes to support um, this nanny state. Mm -hmm. So we are teaching this MAGA group to dream upward while blaming downward. You know, mm -hmm. they, they dream of one day becoming that 1% of the 1%, which of course will never happen, while blaming those who prevent them from reaching that plateau are those... Um, you know, blacks on welfare, or those Mexicans crossing the borders and stealing my jobs, or, or whatever other horrible stereotype one wants to use. So then the yeah. question becomes, to answer your question, can this system be reformed? Um, it, it's kind of hard to reform a structure that is already designed to create um, these forms of oppression. Because um, at the at the very heart of these structures um, is short term gains to benefit a very select group of people at the expense of the vast majority of the world's population. So to try to reform that, it, it, it will be similar to trying to reform Jim and Jane Crow. <laughs> it will be similar to try to reform slavery. It, it, it's beyond reform. Now, what becomes the next economic structure? Who knows? Um, but definitely what we have now is unsustainable. What would you say uh, what would you say the Christian is called to do in terms of his relationship with capitalism? The Christian's core is is, is, is is very easily, I mean, it's very um, clearly um, said in the book of Matthew. I mean, feed the hungry, provide water to the thirsty, clothe the naked, welcome the alien, um, you know, take care of the sick and those in prison. Um, these are the things for whom those who participate, the kingdom of heaven has prepared for so anything that takes away from that, whether it be capitalism or socialism or any other economic structure that prevents the hungry from eating, 
or prevents the alien from being welcome, um, whatever that structure is, is contrary to the message of the gospel for those who believe in the message of the gospel. So what what ends up then happening is that, um, and and this is a term that that, that came out of the immigration movement, uh, we call it civil initiative, in that through our actions, we are holding our government responsible for the actions that they're supposed to be doing. Not civil disobedience where you break bad laws. We have good laws. We just don't follow them. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of one vote, uh, one person, you know, one person, one vote is fantastic. It's great. Yeah. We, we should be following that, but we don't. Right. So how do we do action to bring about that reality? It, is that something that can be achieved within government or by trying to change the government and vote or but what are the the pathways toward that well here's where i start talking about being tremendously hopeless yeah that, when you wrote that it struck me quite hard and i cuz i feel the same way i feel very hopeless and i've been having this conversation in some form or another for 20 years now and it's uh sadder now than it's ever been absolutely so let's be clear racism has won it's going to be around for decades if not centuries um capitalism is going to be around for a long time no matter what we say or do this economic structure will continue to function for a long time into the future um patriarchy is not going away anytime soon. And, and homophobia is going to be around way after we are all dead. So this utopia yeah. of where all these ills are finally resolved, it's not going to happen anytime in our lifetime or our children or our grandchildren's lifetime. So there's a certain hopelessness to this conversation. So then the issue becomes, well, should, you know, why bother? If it's not going to change, you know, why waste our time with this? And that's a response that someone with a lot of privilege can give because that means they have no skin in the game. Right. My argument is that because of my faith, I have no other choice but to fight for justice. And more important than my faith, because of my humanity, because I declare myself to be a human, I definitely have no other choice but to fight for justice. And that that is the badass gospel, right? That's basically it. That to and to fight for that justice in the midst of the hopelessness that you're not going to succeed. Um, definitely puts you in a precarious situ- uh, position with the state that is oppressive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, in your book, in, in this book, I don't know about the other two, uh, you, I think it's the third chapter. Yeah, you, you really go after, uh, it's called an apartheid Euro-Christian genealogy. And you go after Paul, you go after Aquinas, I believe. Who else do we have in here? Uh, yeah, there's Paul. Justin Martyr, uh, Augustine of Hippo, just 
kind of the 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 who's who of understanding the basics of Western Christianity, really. You seem to trace this problem, this this issue, all the way back to Paul, and it has been layered upon and layered upon throughout the years in within the walls of the church, and ultimately set up the country that we have now is ultimately responsible for the ideas and beliefs that led to the conquering of America and the, the theft of that land. Uh, and not to mention, you know, the complete genocide of who knows how many people at this point. Um, tell, tell me a little more about that history and how those layers have been added on over time. Yes. Um, I go back to poor. Because I hear so many people say, oh, yes, the church lost its way with Constantine. With, um, Constantine. Right. Once Constantine becomes a Christian, you have the merger of empire and religion. And from that point forward, um, you know, everything was downhill. And, yeah. and I want to say it really begins to go downhill with Paul adopting this Greek philosophy of his time and the stoicism of the Roman Empire. So it's not something, you know, and I wanted to begin there to show that there was something within the very DNA of Christianity that is highly problematic, that we take as truth when it had nothing to do with the message of Jesus Christ. And then I go through all these different theologians. Some of them are very well known. Many of them are, are more recent ones. And, and I've gotten a lot of pushback for that genealogy. But what I'm trying to argue is it doesn't matter if these individuals said these things or did not say these things. This is how they have been interpreted by your Christian uh, theologians that ends up justifying the very structures we have. You see, my concern is that when I decide to enslave Africans um, and kill the Indians so I could take their land so the Africans can work on it, I can't say... I'm doing this because I'm a horrible person who is a murderer and a, th and a thief. Instead, I need some kind of spiritual justification. Right. <laughs> I need to be able to look in the mirror and say, I'm a godly man doing the work of God, even though some of these consequences may not be that great. So what I'm trying to do is figure out how did this Eurocentric white nationalist Christianity develop so that I can do that. And it's not just something very recently. You know, it begins with this division between uh, body and, and, and soul that Paul begins, you know, back in the beginning. I mean, it, it begins with that and where the body is no longer has value. It's only the spiritual that has value. It begins with Justin Martyr saying that if you're not a Christian, basically everybody else is being influenced by demons. You know, which, you know, and, and it goes throughout all of history to the point in where, of course, I can steal this land because these Indians are savage barbarians who don't even have a soul. And black people, um, they may have a soul, but they have to be taught how to be Christian. And the best way to be taught how to be Christian is to be my servant. And in exchange of serving me, I will bring them into the gospel, into the heaven, the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. What a great deal they're getting. So these type of, uh, of spiritual, uh, spiritualizing oppression begins way back um, with the emergence of Christianity. 
Yeah. It, but that is even Paul's work and wording are often. I'll start that. Let me start that question over. Whenever I talk to people, one of my things is I, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are going through deconstruction, who grew up fundamentalists like myself and just are shocked at the at the change in thought and in learning a little more about your own faith. And one of the first challenges I always issue is I want you to read the synoptic gospels and I want you to skip everything Paul does. And then I want you to go back and read everything Paul does plus John and tell me what feels different. Does it feel like two different messages are being taught? And to me, it does. I, I, I'm just like you, I've traced this back to Paul myself, as Paul is this angered person who wanted to spit in the eye of the original apostles and disagree with a lot of what they did, uh, despite not having any real experience with Jesus. But we're supposed to take his word on that, you know, that he saw this vision. How do we... In, in a culture that either dismisses the Bible altogether or which sees the Bible as the living word of God, which cannot be changed and defied in any way, which is how I grew up. How do we get people to focus on the red letters, as I call it, uh, the, the Jesus words and the Jesus actions, uh, and maybe even throw out, throw out all the chaff, as, as you might call it? How do we how do we do that outside of academia? Because that's one of those things that is a very privileged position. If you had the opportunity to go get a PhD, you know that's a, a great deal of privilege that a lot of people like myself will never have access to because of the financial burden. So how do we take that from academia to real people, real people who call themselves Christians, and encourage them to be that? Well. It's interesting because I think the, the first book I ever published is called Reading the Bible from the Margins, which oh, is still my bestseller. It's one of the top selling books that I've ever published. And, and like I said, it's like over 25 years old now. Um, in that book, I provide the methodology on how to read the Bible. And, and, and what I argue is that, number one, we all, we all approach the Bible um, by only reading the parts we like and ignoring the parts we don't like. So when, you know, uh, you know, Paul is saying, you know, slaves obey your master, we don't like that anymore, so we don't really pay attention to that. Or when Joshua is being told to enter into the land and massacre all male, females, and babies and infants. Or when the psalmist is talking about that, uh, smashing the heads of babies against the rocks, you know, we kind of gloss over that. So to say that, the Bible is the actual word of God becomes somewhat problematic because then God is very sadistic. And, 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 and I don't want to have that kind of a sadistic God that, uh, you know, God that sends evil spirits onto Saul. Um, when one thinks that I thought only, only the demons, uh, only Satan did that, but here we have God doing the work of Satan. So, so, so we need to begin by realizing that, Rather than the word of God, this is probably how humans at that time understood the movement of God. Mm-hmm. So then how do we read this? And, 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 and Jesus gives us an example. You know, he says, you know, you have heard an eye for an eye for a tooth for a tooth. This is from Exodus. 
But I say to you, forget that. That's wrong. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. So Jesus rejects the Bible because it was probably it may have been okay then, but it was problematic during his time. And therefore, the new message is one of love and non-retaliation. So if Jesus can reject portions of the Bible, he gives us permission to do likewise. So, so how do we then reject portions of the Bible? Well, uh, you know, in John 10, 10, it says, I have come to give life and give life abundantly. So if I use that as my lens, any passage that does not give life abundantly is problematically and wrong. So when Paul says, women obey your husbands or slaves obey your masters, uh, or when Paul says, a woman shall be saved through childbirth, you know, these are all problematic. Mm -hmm. So these just need to be rejected. Uh, we can still learn something from all this. That, I mean, there's still messages within the biblical text that are important, but that's how we get rid of the, as you said, the shaft that, you know, that, 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 that pollutes uh, this message of, of love and love abundantly. I mean, I'm sorry, of life and life abundantly. Yeah. I, so in other words, you would say it, 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 something like that is so difficult for me because I grew up with the idea that, you know, this is the inspired written word of God practically handed to Jesus, you know, and then published. Um, when you, when you reject the old Testament or parts of the old Testament or, or, you know, ideas from it that's it's a very difficult thing to do because you feel like you're throwing out the entire thing for me it was very hard to wrap my mind around the idea that it's not all divine it really is humans trying to explain the unexplainable um what are the the educational and you know if we were going to teach a sunday school class to new christians what would we what would we want to tell them how would we present the badass gospel to them. I mean, basically, what I have done in my writings, and you know, is is look at these verses that are highly problematic. You know, like one of my favorite in um, in in Deuteronomy says that um, I can have a harem as long as I can't have two sisters in it. But somehow, my wife forbids me from obeying the Bible literally. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, or you know, what I used to like to preach on at, at this when I was a preacher in the Southern Baptist churches, you know that um, again in, the, in Deuteronomy that uh, you are to collect the tithe and at the end of the year buy strong liquor and have a party. <laughs> yeah, you know. So if we're going to say this is the literal word of God, then let's actually read it as the literal word of God and 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 see if there's a problem with it. And if it's a, you know, and let's just start using some reason because I sincerely doubt Southern Baptists are going to start having, you know, alcohol parties uh, just because it's in, in Deuteronomy. Um, but, but, but this is where we begin to raise that consciousness of thinking. Because I was also one of those individuals that believed that the Bible was the actual word of God and you could not touch. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I read the Bible two or three times a year. And yeah, the more I read it, yeah. the more I started seeing things that were like, whoa, wait a minute, hold it. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little problematic. What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, there there became know. a time, I, I don't know how many times I went through the Bible before I deconverted or whatever, <clears throat> but um, there came a time when I just did not recognize Jesus in within the church at all. I, I couldn't find yeah. this 
radical revolutionary willing to turn over the tables and to get out a whip of reeds and uh, mm -hmm. I, and I started to notice that when Jesus was dealing with the quote unquote sinners, it was loving and kind and patient and yeah. forgiving and, you know, go and sin no more. There's no question about, you know, how kind and loving he was to the woman at the well. Mm -hmm. But when he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman authorities, he had a, a well, you can, you can read the way I, this book just, very much reminds me of the way Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's a lashing. It's it's hard to hear. It's you know your questions are are fruitless, meaningless questions because you're worried about all that when you should just be loving your neighbor. You know who do you say that I am? Because uh, of just how ludicrous the questions that they were throwing at him, trying to stump him were. Um, I I feel all of that emanating from your book and that that attitude that Jesus carried around with him, or at least in my reading of Jesus, uh, is just spectacular within this book. I'm so glad that I very randomly happened to be on an email thread where this was offered up to me because I realized that there are people who have been doing this for years, writing and, and talking about the same things that I'm just now getting to the point where I understand uh, how things work and, and, you know, the conclusions that you're reaching here are conclusions that I'm, I've kind of come into on my own very slowly over a, a long, long period of time. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now. Um, in, in the book, there were a few things I wanted to, to quote if I can find them, but I may not be able to. Yeah, so there, the last chapter, I believe it's the last chapter, yeah, it's called Playing the Prophet. Um, I, I guess I've tried to do a lot of the same same thing you're talking about here, is like reading the environment, the, the economy as it is, you know, kind of seeing the direction that things are going. Um, do you foresee that there will be some sort of resistance to this apartheid? Will it be from the church, emanating from the church in any way? And uh, as far as a prognosis goes, do you do you think it can actually change? Or are we going to continue doing things the way we have? I know this is kind of a repeat of an earlier question, but... No, no. It's, I mean, literally, look into our crystal ball and try to imagine what's going to happen. Um, we do know, um, and, and, and I think Foucault writes about this, wherever you have um, oppression, you have resistance. Yeah. I mean, wherever there is oppression, people will resist. You know, how they resist could be very, you know, very you know, aggressively or could be very subdued because of the consequences of resistance. So there will always be resistance. There will, you know, regardless of what happens, there will be resistance. The question is, where will that resistance come from? Um, I do not see it coming from the, the, the church. Um, I think the church is so co-opted by this white Christian nationalism that it, 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 it instead supports the building of this apartheid when, what is it, 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump in the last election? 
and the vast majority of white Catholics and white mainline Protestants voted for Trump, it tells you where the church is at. Right. Now, you do have some people of faith, not just Christians, but Jews and Muslims and, and Mormons and, you know, and, and people of no faith, you know, humanists and, and atheists, who will be resisted. And I find that those who will be resisting are probably going to be the non-Christians. Um, not for faith reason, but for the reasons of their own humanity. Yeah. Um, I think that's where the resistance will come. Um, the question is, what will be the length, uh, the depth of the consequences for that resistance? Yeah. Um, I do see a violent future. Yeah. I mean, when the vast majority of the people who support an apartheid America owns guns and, and, and weapons of mass destruction, it becomes tremendously scary. Yeah. Um, you know, and as one who has had several um, threats, um, it, 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 it's supposed, you know, it's supposed to silence me, but it hasn't yet. But, you know, again, I don't know if one day will be effective and I will be silenced. Um, and the same can be said with so many other individuals, um, especially those who are actually engaged in praxis to change these systems. Now, the violence need not be physical. More than likely, it will be economics, losing one's job, um, losing one's um, economic security. Um, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people have called my institution demanding that I get fired. Um, I'm even on a watch list of professors who are dangerous. Um, so that type of stuff I see becoming more the norm. While yeah. those who are crying and, and demanding freedom are the ones that are making sure that people like me do not have voice. I don't know if you've addressed it in the book. Um, do you? What do you attribute the the rise in fascist talking points in regards to trans people? I think the rise in 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 fascist talking points have always been part of this country. I don't think this is a new phenomenon. No, certainly. Um, you know, I, I think our history ha has very much um, um, enforced and, and revealed that part of our history of, of who we are as a people. When it comes to trans, and not just trans, but just queer people in general, you know, LBG, uh, QI folk, um, there basically has always been number one a fear of them, you know, you know, if, if, if gay people get married, then they're going to make me gay as well. Some, 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 something like that, um, which has been the position of the church for centuries. Yeah. So it is okay to be anti-queer and specifically anti-trans because my church has given me permission to do so. And, and in so doing, I then revert to those authoritarian 
symbols or, or, or language, as you, as you say, and you say fascist, but they're basically authoritarian, which is part of the Christian structure. You know, you have Jesus, um, and then the Jesus are priests, and then the priests are husbands, and the husbands are, is the family. So you have this very rigid male patriarchal dominated structure in where um, it's very authoritarian, which lends itself to these fascist talking points. Yeah. Well, my partner is trans, um, and I'm in the Deep South, uh, if you can't tell from my uh, very strong accent. Uh, so we're we're currently worried and trying not to freak out about the, kind of the way things feel right now. There is a, a temperature. If you could take the temperature of the country right now, it, it's boiling hot. It's frightening. To it, it's a dangerous time not to be part of the dominant culture. Yeah, uh, I do a lot of traveling, and when I go to a new city, I don't go out at night. I don't go out, you know, walking around and checking out the town at night because I am afraid of occupying a brown body in a city I don't know. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's something sad about that state of affairs. Yeah, extremely. Yeah. And did I hear you correct earlier that you said you were still part of the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes, basically just to bug the hell out of them. Oh, I love um, it. okay, good, <laughs> good reason. <laughs> in, in the book, I do talk about playing the trickster. Okay. So I'm still an ordained Southern Baptist minister. Okay. Um, and a few times, I remember once I was on CNN debating um, the folks at um, the Research Council and Focus of the Family, yeah. and we were debating the LGBTQI civil rights, and I made sure under my name it did not say professor; it said instead Southern Baptist minister. Yeah, so, I love that. <laughs> yeah, and the idea is, um, you know, how do you subvert um, becomes one of the strategies in, in dealing with these oppressive structures. In one of my books, I quoted an ethics by a Jorel. Um, and Jorel is a word you never use in polite conversation. It's a Spanish word that is equivalent to a four-letter word that begins with F and ends with K. Okay. It's an ethics that screws to use that word instead, that screws <laughs> with, with the structures of society. Uh-huh. So this is literally, um, um, you find it throughout the whole Bible with all these yeah. tricksters in the biblical text, yeah. but you also find it in indigenous religious traditions. So how do we do this Christianity through the lens of tricksters is basically the kind of work I'm doing right now, which is what these three books, um, this trilogy, um, is really based on more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, if Jesus was doing anything, it was uh, fucking with the status quo, uh, mm-hmm. especially within a, a Roman-occupied state. Uh, nothing is more dangerous to a state than some guy going around telling people to sell all their property mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and just to live in communion together. Like, what? whoa, that will get you killed. That actually... Uh, you, you wrote something, um, I think it was like April 5th. I, I went through and just tried to read a few of the things you've written more recently. And, uh, it was kind of about how the resurrection is, uh, takes away 
from, or the crucifixion, I'm sorry, the crucifixion takes away from the message because it focuses on the death. And I've, I've been on that same line of thought, especially in regards to the fact that we're so close to Easter and that's, everybody's talking about the resurrection and this, that, and the other. And outside of Jesus dying for your sins on the cross, why? the question should be, why did the state decide to kill Jesus? What did he do that was so dangerous to the state that they might take it upon themselves to take his life? Uh, if there's any message, it's that the state will, will kill a, a peaceful man. Mm-hmm. That the state will do corrupt and evil things. Absolutely. And um, and, the, and the state will do that hand in hand with the religious authorities. Absolutely. Yeah, they will have the blessing of the religious people of whatever day they're in uh, to maintain the status quo. The whole thing, the whole gospel is about disrupting the status quo in lieu of justice and in, in hopes of finding freedom and equality for all people this egalitarian mindset that was really part of of the jewish religion that jesus came from mm-hmm. um another thing that perhaps you can address is that since paul uh the connection between christianity and judaism has been severed christians do not understand judaism at all mm-hmm. uh, they have no access to it they the way that a Jew reads the Bible or, or reads uh, the Torah would be entirely different Absolutely. from the way a Christian might approach it. So, um, And unfortunately, because of that, we don't understand Christianity. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Uh, how do we begin to understand Christianity? And I'll let that be my last question for you. I would say at its very core, at its very core, it's supposed to be about doing justice. I mean, the message of the prophets was always a message of justice, mm-hmm. of taking care of the widows and, and the alien among you and the orphans, which was a euphemism for the most vulnerable within society. And, and Jesus' message was a reiteration of that taking care of the most vulnerable within society. And like I said, to give life and life abundantly. And any faith, whether Christian or any other faith or non-faith, does not provide life and life abundantly, then it is satanic. It is problematic. It is wrong. Um, So the very message of the gospel is, is how do we develop a way of living that encompasses a a care for those who are on the margins of society, those who are on the underside of history. Um, And what we have instead now is a Christianity that is designed to protect the privilege, the power, and the profits of one group of people, white, Eurocentric, mainly men. That is worthy of resistance, and I, I hope that I hope that the hopelessness that you and I both seem to feel is just pessimism, and and maybe things will be better than than either of us are actually thinking. 
but as I, I say have in my, my book, doubts. as I say in my book, I I, I, I I sincerely wish that my prophecies are all wrong. Yeah, yeah, same. I I think uh, Martin Luther King's one of th- this was formative in my approach to the Bible, the way that Martin Luther King had such a a poor taste in his mouth from from moderates as he called them. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Christianity calls you to anything, it is that you cannot be a moderate. You you must be hot, you must be warm, or you mu- I mean you must be cold, but you cannot be lukewarm. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are pretty set in stone as far as I can tell. And I hope that the gospel that that people understand in the future is a badass gospel. I hope that it is a, a fiery hot gospel that changes the world around them. Uh, Dr. De La Torre, I am so thankful that I got the chance to read this book. Didn't you have to pay for it? So that was great. Thank you for that. Um, and I look forward to reading more of your work and following your career because uh, I've been inspired by the work you've done. And I hope that uh, you continue doing it for a long time and in the name of the Southern Baptist Church. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being with you today. It was my pleasure entirely. And if you have any closing words, you're welcome to, to say those now. I just want to respect your time. No, I, I would. I, I think we really um, did a good job in going over the entire idea of the book. I think the only closing words I could think of is that I really do not care what faith or what traditions anybody belongs to. What I care is what are the actions that you take based on what you believe. Uh, we call this orthopraxis becomes more important, that's, that's correct action, becomes more, much more important than orthodoxy, correct yeah. doctrine. Um, you know, the, and, and we do this not because, you know, God wants us to. I mean, they may or may not even be a God. It, and that, that doesn't matter. That's unimportant. What's important is how do I live my, my life as though there is a God? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having um, me. And I will be giving links and, and such to your website and your books um, so that people can just click to it from the show and and give it a read. I highly recommend uh, Resisting Apartheid America, Living the Badass Gospel. Uh, I think you'll find that it can be transformative in your life. So check it out. And uh, again, thank you. <laughs>